Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Jason Shadrick with Premier Guitar, and once again back for another episode of Chasing Frets. And this week, uh, I'm joined by Andy Ellis. Hey, everyone. Uh, and Andy, uh, last Monday or a couple days ago, we talked to uh, Nir Felder, who's just this amazing virtuoso guitarist, and we really kind of broke down his approach to visualizing the fretboard. And today, we're going to talk about um, kind of the skills you develop as a jazz musician that helps you on uh, non-jazz gigs, such as a pop tour. And one thing we were talking about uh, with Nier was how common this is to have pop acts uh, create a backing band full of jazz musicians, right? Yep. And why? And Nier explains his take on why that is. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. And to kind of really see Nier in action with this, uh, he was recently in uh, the band of this gentleman named Ben Platt, who's a singer and Broadway star, and... They have a new Netflix special out that they filmed at Radio City Music Hall, and you get to see Nier really kind of let loose uh, on some of those tunes, and so you can kind of hear him in action, uh, not playing, you know, bebop standards or his own tunes, which is really cool. So, um, hope you're looking forward to this episode. Uh, we go, we cover a lot of ground here. We we touch on you know Sting and Joni Mitchell, and 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 really kind of fundamental uh, skills you need to be a working musician, no matter what the genre. All right, so we'll be back later this week with another episode with Nier Felder. All right, Nier, we're back again. Uh, we're here with Andy Ellison, Nier Felder, and uh, this... Uh, episode, we're going to talk about jazz musicians on pop tours. Now, Nier recently was uh, was in the band for Ben Platt, uh, which you can check out the Netflix special on Netflix right now, live at Radio City. And so, Nier, tell me a little about how you uh, got into that world and ended up with that gig. Sure. Um, I've, I moved to New York to become a jazz musician at the time, um, that was my my overriding passion, but going back to my youth, you know, I always loved pop music, and that never went away. Um, so even even at the times when I was most focused on on learning to be an improviser in in the jazz sense, my love of textures and my love of parts and my love of you know being a a, a puzzle piece in in a greater whole that never went away. And um, so I think I always had that interests you know I was always 
like rooted in in blues and Americana and um, singer songwriter traditions. I, I never stopped for me. So even even at the times when my focus was was on jazz, it was also still partially um, somewhere else. And I think that's that was my style more or less. It was like I was coming to jazz from that place, and that, I wasn't trying to hide that. That was kind of evident. Um, so. I would do those gigs when I moved to New York. You know, songwriters would call me and all sorts of people would call me um, to play all different styles of music. And it's one of the wonderful things about New York City is that that's possible here. You have, you know, some of the best players in any genre all live in close proximity to one another and, you know, have drinks together on Friday nights and stuff like that. So um, I don't know. I think I just met people that did that and, you know, we started playing together and after years of doing cool stuff together, you know, we ended up on, on that particular tour. If you know, so if some of your friends say who are uh, dedicated jazz players, let's say, and you have these drinks on Friday night, you're sitting down, and they go, man, I don't know. I don't know about that, man. It's just, it doesn't swing, or whatever they might say, you know. We're just making that up. Mm-hmm. What, how do you open the door a little bit to to their mind so that they can expand a bit and walk through their jazz world into this other world? Because you've done that. Yeah. How do you help them make that transition? A, a couple of like really important points there. Um, one is that I kind of, from one perspective, I understand where someone saying that is coming from. Um, what they're kind of saying in, in different words is that their love of their craft is so deep that mm. they kind of don't want to let anyone in that doesn't have that same love and that same passion, right? It's like mm. for your close group of friends, right? Like say you have like a, just your, your favorite people that you hang out with every week, right? You maybe don't want someone in that group that doesn't really care about you guys the same way, right? There's like a, a bond right. and a loyalty and a, and a real love for one another. And in this case, for the tradition of the music. So while you may get along great with other you know, people outside the group, the group is based on a love and respect and a real study and passion for this one particular thing. Um, so I, I, I get it because sometimes it, it works in reverse between, between all genres, but if you spent your life developing a craft and devoting your life to it and sacrificing for it, for someone just to jump in who hasn't made those same sacrifices and hasn't doesn't really ha- doesn't have the genuine love for it, it, it feels a little phony. It feels a little disingenuous, right? It's like, you know, I'm not going to go play basketball with uh, LeBron James and pretend that, like, I'm one of the cats. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> like he's dedicated his life to it, and, um, and it shows. I haven't, and that's okay. You know, we can still be friends, but we're not on the same level basketball-wise. <laughs> um, but <laughs> the the other point there is, like, what is a jazz musician, right? From one perspective, it is all the things we just talked about, the love of the craft, the study of the tradition, the years and years and years spent studying. Um, but to me, it's something a little bit bigger than that. It's It's an improviser's mentality, right? The fact that we're not going to play things the same way every night. Um, the fact that every time we play it, we approach it 
in, in light of the uniqueness of the situation. The night, the venue, the audience, it changes and we change too. What we play changes. So I think at the core, that's the kind of musician I am. I, I'm an improviser. And that actually works very well in a pop context. Certain things are the same from night to night. Maybe the set list, maybe the parts, maybe a lot is the same from night to night in a certain way. But how you play it is a thousand percent up to you. Maybe one night I dig in a little more on one note. Maybe one night I play a certain chord just a tiny bit louder or a tiny bit softer. The changes might be more subtle, but they're still there. And when we have that attention to detail, it makes the music come to life. Because no matter what, you can't control time and, and place. You know, we're playing different venues, we're playing different cities, we're playing to a different audience, the weather is different, the di- day of the calendar year, like things change and you can't control it. So if you're an improviser, if you have that, that rootedness inside you to making things come alive, you can make the same chords from night to night come alive in a way that breathes life into them. Like we talked about last week with having the same fingering for things or something, you know, it sounds stale if you repeat it. So for me, as a someone who loves playing pop music and loves playing jazz, I approach them the same way. I just try to breathe life into whatever it is I'm playing and feel the spirit of the moment and feel connected to the people I'm playing with in that moment. Mm-hmm. So what was the, uh, uh, for a gig like Ben Platt's gig, what were, what were kind of some of the specific skills you 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 lean on as a jazz musician that you felt really helped you not only perform in that gig but get that gig let's talk about performing it because you know getting the gig to me is is basically being able to do the job well i mean there are there might be other factors but if you're going to be able to play the gig really really well you're going to get the gig (laughs) i i I think that might sound naive but i i truly believe it um what are the factors? Well, beyond music, there's a certain level of professionalism that you know you can do all the things that would be expected of anyone on a major tour or you know doing a major you know film shoot type situation. Um, but for, from a jazz musician's perspective, it's that sensitivity to things like dynamics, texture, um, articulation, tone. All those things are things that I study and I practice, and it doesn't matter what the genre is. It's like, if you, let's look at dynamics, for example, right? Like, dynamics is an infinite spectrum from the softest soft to the loudest loud. And I think what I've tried to develop or I've tried to realize is that in between the softest soft and the loudest loud, there's an infinite number of shadings, right? So some people might have six. There's like soft, little less soft, medium, little more medium, loud, and very loud. They have six, right? It's like, can, can you be a little louder? It just jumps up to the next notch in the six, um, like a pickup selector or something, right? And then someone who's a little more fine-tuned might have 20. And someone who's a real master might have 1,000. And there's more. There's infinite, right? Like from, you know, oh, you want it a little louder? Here's one 1,000th louder. Um, and I think that when you're playing music where the... You know, in jazz music, we, we have a lot of 
challenging harmonies and a lot of focus on the harmonic content and the rhythmic content. Um, in, in music that has maybe fewer chords and they're diatonic chords, how do you bring those chords to life? So it might be something like the shading of it, the dynamic shading. You know, one one thousandth off is still off on any night in any new venue, right? Mm-hmm. And you make that subtle switch and all of a sudden it all fits in. All of a sudden it fits in with what everybody's playing. It fits in with the acoustics of the venue that is impacted by the amount of people there and what the people are doing, how loud they're screaming. So when you have that, when you try to develop that sensitivity, it kind of, I don't know, it's, it, it works and it's, it doesn't matter what the genre is, but I feel like jazz helped me develop it. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. if you're on stage at the Vanguard and it's small, your amp is not cranked because you're playing no. with largely acoustic instruments, drums and piano and maybe upright bass. And you've got to be able to fit within that during a, a, a piano solo or whatever. But then when it's your time to solo, you got to be the loudest one in the band type thing. You know, you got to you got to rise above and, and know how to how to work that gas pedal. Yeah, and it's funny, my favorite musicians are the ones that like can both fit in in almost any context, but also sound like themselves every time. Like I think about Bill Frizzell or, or John Schofield, you know, or um, one, one of those, you know, master players that like you hear them, you know, it's them right away. But if you hear John play with like um, a jam band or you hear him play with a jazz group or you hear him play in his, you know, funkier projects, it's like it just always works so well because he knows how to how to make those subtle changes. I'm yeah. not talking about huge. It's not like you're putting on a new persona. It's like you're still you, but you have some control over certain aspects of music, certain like variables of music, like touch and dynamics and tone and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, and also, you know, jazz musicians backing up pop acts, like we were discussing a little bit ago before we hit record, was is definitely nothing new are there some of those group those old groups that you always kind of caught your ear like whether it's the groups that sting had or Joni mitchell with pat metheny um what are some of your favorite kind of pop acts that surrounded themselves with jazz musicians to be honest no that's not that's not a specific genre that or subset that i studied because my goal was to be like a real like we talked about earlier like i didn't want to come at it as, as someone that hadn't put in the time studying the, the real roots of the tradition. So like, I look at someone like Mike Campbell as a hero, you know, someone who always played for the song and always put the song at the forefront, you know, whether he was like soaring on an outro or like just playing a part that was just so like, you know, the, the, the song without that solo, is not really the song anymore. You know what I mean? That kind of craft and respect and putting the song first which, by the way, sh- should be the case in jazz, too. It should kind of always be the case, right? Sometimes people get carried away with themselves, with their solos, that they forget that they're playing a song with a group for an audience. Um, and I think that um, that's something that carries over both ways. So, yeah, my, my study of, like, musicians and acts and bands was, was more for, like, the non-jazz side of it because that's what... I wanted to really respect that tradition. You know, I want to sound like a like a band guy. I want to make I want to help make the group sound like a band. And that's an amazing skill too. Um, and I think that sometimes hardcore jazz musicians don't understand the Mike Campbell magic. And yet 
if 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 we 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 all can learn whether we're rock guys or classical or jazz, we can all learn from each other because at the core of great music is the same thing that you've been talking about, being alert and aware in the moment to the music and the sound and the people who are listening to it because it's not in a vacuum. A thousand percent. And that's been a frustration of mine of like hearing, you know, jazz musicians that don't have any love and respect for, for stuff outside of jazz think that they can, they can do it just because they have this harmonic facility. And then you hear them play in a non-jazz context and it's like the worst thing ever. Because <laughs> we, they don't, we don't need like bebop licks over this country shuffle. No, that's you know? like, you know, the worst, and it just shows that, it shows a real disrespect for the music, and it's just, it's rooted in this thing of, like, being so harmony-focused that everything else is, like, there's no attention to dynamics, there's no attention to detail, and I think that those aren't necessarily the best jazz musicians, because there's that, like we talked about, like, what what even is it? It's that improviser's perspective and that attention to detail, so, you know, it should apply across genre lines, you know, it doesn't always, but it should. Mm-hmm. So what was, uh, going back to the you playing in, in Ben's band, What was there an audition process involved? Did they give you some music to learn and you had to come in and play for it? Or how did that come together? No, it's just a, just a trust thing of like, you know, um, people that I've been working with for years that know I work well, that in this case, a music director who, who hired me. And no, there's no audition process. Mm-hmm. But we started, we didn't start with... Um, you know, a Netflix special, we started with some like showcases for the label and that went well. And then we went to TV and promo and then we went to a tour and, um, and it just worked, it worked well. Even, even it worked so well that like, um, I think this is a really rare situation, but like at the time when the tour was announced, I had had, um, you know, something booked in Japan that I really couldn't, couldn't not do at that point. You know, I had business class flights I would have had to repay and like, a week in, in Japan with, you know, something that would have been very hard to get out of that conflicted with rehearsal. And, but by that point we had been playing together enough and developed enough of a bond that, you know, they did something which I think is really rare and let me miss a good chunk of rehearsal time, which, you know, I'm very grateful that they let me do, um, and was able to kind of do everything. Um, but I think that that's, I think that's rare and that's because we were able to form a bond first. Mm-hmm. Um, Something that might be of interest to listeners is like, you know, so I'll, this gig, the music director who I work well with, you know, is a very hands-on music director. He, you know, we rehearse and we go through the sounds and the tones and we fine-tune them together. And he has ideas of like when things should be darker, when things should be brighter, where the chord voicings should be played. Maybe capo this. Maybe can you add a little more of um, a fill in, in this bridge, but not in the first bridge. You know. We work together to craft it. That's his approach, and you know, and I love working with him so much. Um, another gig that I did uh, last year was Erica Badu, just a, a couple shows, but total opposite. Like very little rehearsal time, a lot like no set lists, kind of making parts on the fly, and a lot of like the music director just telling you stuff in your ears during the show in an arena. You know what I mean? <laughs> so like we're we're on stage and we're not sure what song is next. And then all of a sudden he'll be like E flat, you know? Um, and that's another jazz musicians yeah. ball yep. game. You know, it's not a jazz gig, but like if you didn't have that improvisers, um, if you weren't used to that, if you needed to have everything kind of set in stone and played the same way with the same fingering, 
it'd be a very frightening situation, but I got to say that's, you know, some of the most fun I've ever had on stage was that. And, and it went great, you know? Yeah. Mark, Mark, uh, Mark Letary has talked about yep. playing with, with Erica and, and echoes the same thing. It's like, it's so you're on the edge. You're like, you're as excited as the audience cause you're not sure what's going to come next, you know? And I think it's so healthy for the music. I think it makes the music come to life every night. That's the genius there. But it's not everybody's approach. So, like, it's great to be able to do that and feel comfortable. But I take those same skills, and I, and I would put that on a Ben Platt gig where it's like, even though you know the set list, even though you know what chord is coming next, you have to bring it to life on that night in that context. Maybe the piano player played a chord a little louder than he usually does. What are you going to do, you know? Um, that sensitivity, that deep listening, I feel like mm-hmm. that's kind of the key, and it's not its not genre-defined. Right. All right, wrap up. Nier, I'm going to put you on the spot because I, I like the idea that if you put something out into the universe, there's a chance it might happen. Uh, you get called for what's like your dream pop gig. You get called. somebody either, either somebody you like needs you to fill in for a couple gigs or they're looking for somebody new. Who's the person you're going to want to get that call from? There's so many. I know. There's I so know there's so many, but just just throw out one or two names. One is Paul Simon, probably. I, I, I would love to play with Paul. I, I just, that's, we were talking about songs earlier, yeah. right? Like playing for the song. Like Talk about a songbook he would have, too. What a writer. You know, like those songs kill me. Um, you know, the, those early solo albums, you know. They kill me, and I still listen to them. So that's one. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Sting earlier too. That's like a level of like elegance and sophistication in the in the live performance where I feel like the way Dominic Miller plays is perfect. Yeah, he's so perfect. Like he stings Mike Campbell. That's for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. but there are so many gigs, including with like you know younger younger artists and, and hip-hop artists and all, all, all across the spectrum that I would love to do just because, you know, they're fun. Um, yeah. Taylor Swift, like, how fun would that be? Um, I, you know, I, I love it all, so. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, thanks for hanging out with us again, Nir. Uh, we're going to be back one more time later this week, and we're going to focus on practicing, which I know I could use help with from time to time as well. So for uh, Andy Ellis and Nir Felder, uh, I'm Jason Shadrick, and we'll be back again later this week. Thank you.